Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. What a good morning of worship it has been. I encourage you now to take your Bibles out and open to the book of James, a little New Testament book of James and chapter 2 this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we come to his word. Father, thank you for this time already this morning to worship you, to remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, and now this opportunity to open your, your holy and inspired word, and we hear from you. So may our minds be attentive, may our hearts be receptive as you speak, and may it make a difference in how we live in the days ahead. For our own good and for the glory of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. One Friday morning, in the middle of the morning commute, a young man in jeans, in a long sleeve black t-shirt, carried a small case and entered into a subway station in Washington, D.C. He went over against a sidewall next to a trash receptacle. He adjusted his, his hat as a black baseball cap. Then he opened the case and pulled out a violin. He took a few dollars from his pocket and some change and shrewdly threw it into the case as seed money. And then he turned the case so it faced the lobby where all the people were and he began to play. Despite the fact that the violin had substantial volume as it resonated off the tile-clad walls and floor of the subway, Most people hurried past him. They never bothered to look at or to pause to listen to this musical beggar. Well, that was in Washington, D.C. While in Boston, there was a violinist virtuoso named Josh Bell who played to a standing room only crowd in Boston's famed Symphony Hall. Concert goers there gladly paid over $100 a person just to get some bad seats and standing room only, not the good seats. And I wonder, what's the difference between these two violinists that produced such a different reception from a crowd? The answer to the question is actually none at all, because the violinist was the same in both cases. It was three days after the concert in Boston Symphony Hall that Josh Bell went into the D.C. subway and opened up his violin case and began to play at 7.51 in the morning. He played for the next 43 minutes in that subway station. 
He's regarded by many as the finest violinist in the world. And he performs some of the finest compositions ever written for the violin. And he played on one of the world's finest violins, a Stradivarius, made in 1713, and he paid over three and a half million dollars for that violin. In all that morning in the subway, 1,097 people walked past, but only a few even acknowledged his presence there. A grand total of seven people stopped and paused to listen for more than a second or two. Twenty-seven people dropped money in his violin case for a total of $32.17. Now, actually, for most of us, that's not a bad income for 43 minutes of work. But it's a mere fraction of the over $1,000 a minute that he's usually paid to play. The violinist was the same. But most people couldn't see past the outward appearance of a beggar in a subway versus the famous musician in a tuxedo in a concert hall. And so they valued the violinists very differently. As we're here in the book of James and in chapter 2, James calls us to live out real faith in our real world. He reminds us that real faith shows up in real life. In our passage today, and we're in the first 13 verses here of chapter 2, James draws our attention to a very thorny problem which all too frequently raises its head even among professing followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, don't show partiality. If you have the New International Version, as many of you do, it says, don't show favoritism. There's the problem, partiality, favoritism. It's the the valuing of some people over others. And he says, if you're a Christian, don't do it. It is incompatible with to holding faith in Jesus Christ. James goes on, as he does often in this book, he gets it real. He gives us a little, for instance, here's how it happens. He gives an illustration. It's one that still we can picture even in our own time. So he puts, as it were, favoritism on display for us. Verse 2. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, into your church, in other words, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit over here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. We get the picture. Two visitors show up at church one Sunday morning. One of them 
It says the first visitor is wearing a gold ring. Literally, the text says he is gold-fingered. In other words, he probably doesn't just have one ring. He probably has a bunch. (laughs) Big, flashy rings. And it says he is in fine clothing. Literally, the word there is shiny clothes. You know, before we had mass production, clothes were very expensive. They were made by hand. And in this day and time, to have just several changes of clothes means you're pretty wealthy. But to have fine clothes, the clothes you just put on to go look good. And they would often, in, you know, it may be silk, so it's shiny. It's shiny clothes, he says. It may have woven into the fabric. It may have threads of silver or gold as the very rich of those days might do. This man has the clothes and the jewelry that say rich and important. And immediately at the same time with him or maybe just right after, another man walks in and it says that he is a poor man in shabby clothes. Literally the word shabby there is filthy. It's tattered. It is worn. It carries all the dirt of his labors through the week and his sleeping in the dirt. And he comes in. And everyone in the church trips over themselves, accommodating the man in the fine clothes and the jewelry. Here, you sit up here in the best seat in the house, right here up front where nobody sits today. For us, the fine seats are the ones in the very back, so you can get out quick. You can fall asleep and hopefully nobody knows. Yeah. We note that as we see this story, we note that favoritism has a couple of faces to it. You see, it has a face of preference, where we give preferential treatment, special treatment to some people, certain types of people, as in the case of this rich man ushered to the best seat. We treat some as, because we value them higher But favoritism also has a face of prejudice where we give poor treatment, little or no attention or negative attention or little care to someone that we don't view as particularly worthy or maybe we view them as less than worthy. As in the case of this poor man, yeah, sit here on the floor next to my feet. Better yet, stand over there. (laughs) Surely that would never happen in the church. I mean, we see that stuff happen out in the world, but surely it would never happen in the church. Well, it must have happened in the church for James to be writing this in the letter saying, hey, folks, don't do this. It was happening then. It was a problem in the early, early days, the early months of the church. You may recall Acts chapter 6, after the church is formed there in Jerusalem and people are still hanging around for months, even a couple of years afterwards, 
as the fledgling church is growing and, and they're sitting under the apostles teaching and so many of them were from out of the country. They'd come for Pentecost for the holiday. They got saved at Pentecost and now they're sticking around learning about this, this whole new thing with Jesus, how he's the Messiah who's come and they're, they're learning to understand the, the Old Testament scriptures in a whole new way and they're waiting for Jesus to come back because when he left, he said, I'm coming back. And there was distribution of food to the, the widows. And the Grecian Jews, the ones who had come from out of the country, who were there and had stayed, they, they began to realize that our widows are getting treated different than the Jews from the Hebraic Jews, the ones who live here locally. It seems the outsiders are getting slighted in the food distribution See, there's a valuing of some over others. And the church had to address that, and they did, and they dealt with it. But it has occasionally been a problem in churches ever since. And may I say, it's, I don't think the rule, it's the exception. Because overall, we see through history, the church, especially in these early centuries, one, one of the things that set the church apart was the fact that here, slave and free, Jew and Greek, they were all one in Christ. They were treated equally. But it hasn't always been the case in the church. Even in our own country, 200 years ago, we find that it had become practice in Methodist churches to either sell or rent the pews to the folks who could afford it. So you want a good place to sit, you buy a pew or you rent a pew. If you don't have money to do that, there were benches, not the pews, they were behind. And that's where the poor people and the slaves all sat in the back of the church. Because remember, the good seats are up front. A new mindset here might just blow your mind. Fortunately, 1860, some folks said that's wrong. And they broke away and started a new denomination, the Free Methodist Church. That's why I got that name. It had free seats where the poor could sit up front with the rich. The slave could sit up front with the free. They also took a stand against slavery. May I say that didn't just happen in the Methodist churches. Similar types of things have happened in churches throughout history. I pray and I hope it never happens in this church. I'm not aware of it, but if it ever does happen, we need to recognize it, we need to call it out, and we need to eradicate it. Such favoritism should not happen. Favoritism not only has two faces, it has many bases, meaning foundations. I use that word just because it rhymed with faces. You might say many roots, many different underlying causes for it. It may occur based on wealth. Favoritism may occur based on nationality. It may occur based on race. It may occur based on social status or based on popularity or looks. But all are equally out of place for any believer in Jesus Christ. Favoritism has many places. You see, 
James is giving us a story here of what happened in a church with a rich man and a poor man, but he's not limited, I don't think, to the church, and he's not limiting it to rich and poor. Because favoritism has lots of different roots and has many different places. It can happen anywhere. And it's just as wrong for us to play favorites in our workplace or in our neighborhood or in our social gatherings as it is for us to do so in our church. We need to follow Scripture, not our culture, not our, you know, the habits of the people around us, not even our own feelings. We need to find Scripture, which he says, as he begins here, brothers, he says, show no partiality, no favoritism. James begins then to outline for us the case against favoritism. What's wrong with it? Why is it a wrong thing? Look at verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The first reason that favoritism, that partiality is wrong is because it exalts ourself. Exalts self. When we exhibit favoritism, we become judges. And by the way, illegitimate judges because we're not appointed by God or anyone else to be judges here. We've set ourselves up. Worthy, worthy, not worthy. Worthy, not worthy. We're illegitimate judges. We're self-appointed. We're corrupt judges because we're on the take. You see, we have selfish motives, he says here. Judges with evil thoughts, evil motives. Some translations say. What motive do we have in playing favorites? In showing preference to some and prejudice to others? Well, the motive of prejudice is ultimately, ultimately, it's about building ourselves up. Building ourselves up by pushing some down. Or building ourselves up by trying to attach ourselves and ride the coattails of those whom we deem worthy that are above us. They are richer than us, more powerful than us, more popular than us. And somehow if we hang around them and, and we, you know, kowtow to them a little bit and treat them well, they'll kind of drag us along in their wake. And we'll get some wealth or we'll get some popularity or we'll get some power or we'll get whatever it is because we associate with such folks. We gain approval Favoritism exalts self. Next, he goes on in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Favoritism goes against God. It goes against God. It, you see, it goes against his nature. God, you see, shows no partiality. Romans chapter 2 says, verse 11, for God shows no partiality. I'll read from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. God shows no partiality. 
He doesn't pervert justice based on somebody's wealth or their, or their status. He accepts, God accepts no bribes, and he defends those who cannot defend themselves. Therefore, if you and I call ourselves Jesus followers, and we play favorites, honoring these people and dishonoring these people based on our little arbitrary choices, we play favorites, we're not honoring Jesus. We're not following in his footsteps. We're not following in his character. We bring him dishonor in the world by saying we're following him when we are prejudiced or show preference. Not only is it against God's nature, it is against God's heart. I just read from Deuteronomy that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and he loves the alien. God looks after the downtrodden. God has compassion for the poor and the oppressed. It is those who are poor in spirit, the Bible says, who inherit the kingdom of God. If God has compassion for the poor and the oppressed, and if we shun them and we kiss up to the rich, then we find ourselves in opposition against God. Psalm 14, verse 6 says, You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Why is favoritism wrong? It exalts self. It also goes against God. Look at verse 6 and 7. We'll find another reason. He says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into the courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you have been called? He says, isn't it the rich ones, in other words, who who are oppressing you? And aren't they the ones who blaspheme the name of Jesus? You see, it's not that every rich person does these things, but he's saying, if you look generally... Look around the world and remember that most of our brothers and sisters in Christ, or a substantial number of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world live under persecution. Who is it who persecutes the name of Christ, the cause of Christ, and the people of Christ? It is the rich. It is the powerful. It is the the intellectuals. I can't even say who they are. (laughs) Intellectuals. I had a word. I can't find it. (laughs) Yeah, those folks. Smart folks. It is the beautiful people. It is the party crowd. It is the in folks, those who are in power. They're the ones who abuse our brothers and sisters in Christ and at times attack us as well. What he's saying is that favoritism is irrational. When we try to join up to and connect and, you know, curry favor with the, with the rich and the powerful. They're the ones who exploit you. They're the ones who drag you into the court. They're the ones who slander the name of Christ, he says. He's, by the way, not saying that we need to avoid the rich, avoid the powerful, that we should shun them, that we should never talk to them, that we should hate and despise them. It's not what he says at all. Just saying, don't fawn over them. Ooh, they're rich. They're powerful. Don't be overly impressed by them or seek to impress them. 
What a tendency we have to do that. You know, if some great celebrity household name walks in the place today, I dare say most of us are, oh, look, there's, uh, they're sitting down in our church. <gasps> look who showed up at chapel today, you know. It's so-and-so. Oh, oh. Let's, let's be nice to them so they come back because wouldn't that be cool if they come to our church? He says, don't fawn over them. They need Jesus. They do need Jesus. So we don't don't, um, despise them. But I tell you the truth, Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard for a powerful person. It's hard for some, for these folks that we just mentioned, it's hard for them to come to Christ because it's hard for them to get past themselves. It's hard for them to see their need because they trust their own resources, they trust their own intellect, they trust their own power. It's hard for them to humble themselves and come to Christ. The very ones that we tend to overlook and the ones we tend to ignore and the ones we tend to belittle are the ones who most easily say, Man, I'm desperate. You mean there's a God who loves me? There's a God who can rescue me from sin? I know I'm a sinner. You mean there's hope? Favoritism is irrational. When we look down on the ones who most likely are the ones who will listen and we, and we you know, try to curry favor with the ones who most likely don't care. But there's another reason We keep going. Look at verses 8 through 11. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love the neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Bottom line, this favoritism is not only irrational, it is sin. Jesus summed up the law, you may remember, in two statements. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, the law is summed up in these two statements. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And secondly, the second statement, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the point James is making here is that favoritism is sin. It's breaking that law. Favoritism is the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. Because we're placing ourselves first, whether we are trying to value someone else as less, look down on someone to make ourselves look better, or whether we are trying to get the attention and the favor of somebody that we value higher because we're trying to get ahead. Either way, we're more concerned about ourselves than we are the other person. And so it's sin. And he makes the point, it's not a small sin. It's not, yeah, it's just a little sin. It's just a little favoritism, just a little partiality, just a little prejudice, just a little, you know, preference. He says, when you break one part of the law, you are guilty of it all. There is no little sin in God's sight. It's a big deal. So James gives us four reasons why we shouldn't 
play favorites. No showing favoritism. Then, as James does, he gets real about, well, how do we change? How can we not be a person who does that? We need a change of mind, and he gives us some couple of truths we need to pay attention to. Verse 12, as he gives us the antidote here for favoritism. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We will all stand before and face the impartial judge, the God who doesn't play favorites, the God who made every human being, values every human being, loves every human being. We're going to stand before him. That should cause us a little bit of pause about how we treat others. But he also says we're to be judged under the law of liberty. We talked about that last week. The perfect law that gives liberty, it sets us free because it's through the law of God that we hear the grace of God, the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. The very fact is that through the word of God, it exposes that we are all sinners, that we are all doomed, we are all destined for judgment and hell, but it also tells us of the grace of God through Jesus Christ as we just remembered and celebrated here in the communion. Not one person will get to heaven because of their race. Not one person will get to heaven because of their wealth. Not one person will get to heaven because of their position, their status in society or on social media. Not one person will get to heaven because of their good looks. Not one person will get to heaven because they're popular. Not one person will get to heaven because of their good deeds, because they're a nice person. As we made it clear earlier, the only way we get to heaven is by the grace of God, through the provision he has made through Jesus Christ, by receiving Jesus through faith, putting our faith and trust in him. It's a gift of God, as Ephesians 2, 8 says. It's not of works that no one can boast. Remember God's grace. No one deserves salvation. No one earns it. It can only be received as a gift. God so loved the world he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's only received by trusting in Jesus. So, since we are receiving grace through the law of liberty, rather than the judgment we deserve, He basically just says we need to speak and act accordingly. Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Remember God's grace and let that control how we speak and how we act, how we treat others. We are to value all people made in the image of God, loved by God. All people who have an equal need for the grace of God through Jesus. And so we are to show that grace of God to others by the way we treat them. We are to show mercy to others. We are to show the love of God to others just as he showed that to us. Verse 13, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. They're sobering words 
And sometimes people read this verse and they, they look at it and they, they think, wow, this verse says that somehow we earn God's mercy by being merciful to others. And we, because we lose God's mercy by being unmerciful. We know that's not true. We've made it very clear already this morning. We can go to Scripture after Scripture. Salvation is not by works. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by our own efforts. We're saved by what Jesus has done and faith in Him alone. That's not what this verse is saying. We're not, it's not saying that we are saved by giving mercy to others, then God will give mercy to us. James' point is simply this. Having received God's mercy, then being unmerciful to others is unthinkable. Being prejudiced towards others, showing preference towards others, and receiving God's mercy, simply those don't coexist. To value some people higher and some people lower, we are totally undeserving and God has poured out his mercy on us. Those are incompatible An unmerciful person will face the wrath of God in judgment not because they didn't earn God's mercy, but because they obviously never experienced His mercy. They really experienced His mercy, they would be transformed by it. Again, James' point in this whole book, real faith shows up in real life. If you really place your faith and trust in Jesus, it begins to change who you are from the inside out. It changes how we live. And so God's mercy triumphs over judgment. It triumphs over the judgment that we deserve for our own sin, and it triumphs over our judgmental, unmerciful hearts towards other people. Let's pray. Father, I've gone a little long, but this is an important passage. It is all the talk of our society. People talk about prejudice. We talk about preference. The reality is it is a problem of the heart. And it's a problem of a heart that has not come to face to face with your mercy and with your grace. Because if we do, it changes us. We're so thankful that there's good news for us today that you don't accept people into your family based on our family tree or on our intelligence or on the basis of our wealth or the basis of our accomplishments or the basis of our looks. None of us qualify. You've welcomed us into your family because of your grace through Jesus. Father, thank you. There may be somebody here today who's never put their trust in you. I trust that, I hope that it's been very clear to them today that you are a good God who loves us and has given to us forgiveness and life to any who trust in Jesus and that they will put their trust in him today. Father, for the rest of us who already know Jesus, may this transform the way we treat others. May it be evident, clearly evident to others that we are different because we are people who exhibit your grace. We are people who live out love towards others. We are people who care about others. So, Father, 
Help us to take your word this day and to do as the text last week told us, to put it into practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.